Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. My therapist told me many times, he said, it's not an excuse. He's like, it can be your truth. It cannot be cured, but you can live with it. There are tools. It's not a way for you to forego responsibility as a good partner, but it's on you. Like, you have to be the one to do it, to get treatment, to decide what path you go down. When a lot of people think ADHD, they think of, well, number one, they think of boys because for so long it was thought to only affect boys. And, you know, as is typical, women and girls just weren't included in research or weren't evaluated for it. Hey everyone, Meredith here. Today's episode is, yeah, kind of a personal one. We are going to talk about my somewhat recent diagnosis with ADHD and how I've been living with it and sometimes struggling with it for most of my life. And I didn't even know what it was or that I had it because like so many women, I just wasn't diagnosed. No one told me, hey, you have ADHD. There is nothing wrong with you. Your brain just works a little different. Every time we allude to this or talk about ADHD, we get a lot of people who express interest in hearing my story, our story. So I hope that if you also struggle with it, you feel seen and validated. And maybe if you have someone in your life who struggles with it, or maybe maybe you don't know and they don't know that they have this, it will help you with some understanding of what this is and how it works. Some very important legal disclaimers. This episode does discuss a medical condition. It discusses treatments and it discusses medication. This is for information only. It is to share my story. It is not to provide a medical diagnosis and in no way is me recommending treatment of any kind. Treatment is for you to discuss with your medical professionals, your therapists, and your doctors. So with that said, let's get into it. is sad because it's snowing. Like it's a surprise that that started happening. I am not surprised or sad. You literally got back from your run today and you were like, I know why I've been feeling so tired. And it's because every step that I take is hard. That's what I heard. I don't know if that's okay. Thanks for making fun (laughs) of me. So you were just humoring me when you were entertaining and like consoling me. That was all a lie. There's an element of like, I will say this. There, there. It turned from like a really, really nice fall to very cold without snow in like one day, which was shocking to the system. Yeah. And then it snowed this morning, which I wasn't expecting. And unfortunately, this is like one of my biggest weeks of running, which sucks because and straight up, it just does. Yeah. Like, I know it's first world problems, but it's like. I have a 32 kilometer run on Saturday. I had a 15K run today with like intervals and I want to get a good feel for my race pace. And it's like, it's not just snowy, but it's like slippery. Yeah. It's like, it would be better actually if it was colder. Yeah. And then it it is snowing. So it's hard to see because the snowflakes are in my eyes. So I I get it. It's like, it's dumb and I really shouldn't complain because I want to be grateful for, you know, having legs and all that. But I was just kind of like grouchy when I got back. Because it's like, I like running in the spring and the fall and the summer and not having to worry about where I put my feet and wondering if it's going to be like an ice patch or not. I do hate to break it to you, but you live in the wrong place for summer running. For winter running? If you like summer running the most and you don't enjoy winter running, literally half of our year is winter running. No, no. It's like a third. Okay. Well, a significant percentage. Okay. Is in weather. Where do you propose we move? Southern California or Maui. Okay, let's do it. Okay, one day. Anyways, I'm probably going to be a snowbird. Eventually. Yeah, when I'm old, like skiing is going to not be happening anymore. I'll be a snowbird. I'm going to replace all of my skis with golf clubs. Oh, is that Mm -hmm. day coming? Yep. I just, I don't think I can handle winter for the rest of my life. Yeah, well, okay, so... Would we still ski or not at all? No, I just told you. 
So what do I do? I play golf. I am not good at golf. You get good. I'll just ride bikes. No, yeah, skiing isn't as much fun when you're like a little bit on the older side. I don't know. Your mom has a good time with it. I know, but it's like limited to how long your days can be. And my mom's still young. Like she's like 65. And then she'll be like, oh, yeah, (laughs) I know. She does scream in pain sometimes. She had her knee problem. Yeah. And you're like, oh my God, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, all good. (laughs) Okay. That was a very specific knee problem where like her meniscus would like catch on something. Yeah. She ended up getting surgery and it's better now. But yeah, (laughs) like like, we'd be skiing and it was like every run at least a few times she'd like scream in pain uh-huh. and we'd all be like, oh my gosh, are you okay? And she'd be like, yep. She's still on the younger side. Yes, she's retired, but like 60, I'm talking like 70, oh, 75. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, we can snowbird when we're 75. Maybe we can just table that for now. Okay. We don't need to make that decision. No. Today. Anyways, we were at the, I don't know how I'm going to tell the story, but I'm going to tell it because maybe people have dogs and can relate. So we were at the dog park yesterday and I'm like hot and cold on dog parks generally, but the one in Fernie is pretty good and you get a lot of the same dogs going. So you get a feel for who's there. And we went at like 145 yesterday in the afternoon because we were running some errands. We were doing our five minutes of errands for the day because that's how long it takes to do things in Fernie. And we get there and it's like, it's pretty empty. Like we expected it to be. Rue loves the dog park. She loves, she just like runs around. She meets all the dogs. She chases them. She tries to get everybody to play. Like she's that dog that causes like the horde of dogs running around in a circle together, like Rue like catalyzes that. And she's still young. Like she's got fairly good manners, but she can get overexcited sometimes. And so we were there and this woman was coming with this kind of like medium sized doodle. And Rue does the border collie thing where she like crouches down and she's just like staring at the dog. And that's usually fine. But you can kind of tell the dog was like, um, like she's like looking around. He's like looking around to try to figure out what to do. So he walks closer and closer and the woman is like right with him. And like at the last minute, Rue jumps up as if he wasn't able to see her, even though he saw her the whole time and kind of like goes to play with him. And then he doesn't really engage. Like he's still staying there. And so she gets a little closer and kind of just like pounces on him, like not in a rude way, but like a, hey, let's play. And that woman was so offended by that. Yeah. Like as if Rue had just like attacked, attacked with like a knife and a gun. Yeah. She's like, oh, my. Ah, yeah. (laughs) You're at a dog park. Yeah. And so Rue was like, "Okay, I guess this dog doesn't want to play. Plus, I think we had like called her at that point because of the woman's reaction. And, you know, she's like, let's go, Farrington. And I was just like, what the hell are you even doing here? Yeah. And then she was with someone who had a dog that knew Rue. Yeah. So they were playing and the other dog's name was Dolly and Dolly's babysitter for the day was like very friendly. And Dolly's babysitter and Farrington's mom, I guess were walking together. So Farrington's mom and Farrington had to like wait off to the side for probably like five or 10 minutes while Rue and Dolly played slash the babysitter caught Dolly. Yeah, because Dolly doesn't have any recall. (laughs) Anyways, and it was just, it was a really weird thing that like Dolly's babysitter was like super like friendly and like cool with Rue and like understood that it's like playtime. And like, Farrington and Farrington's mom were just like off to the side waiting and she was holding on to Farrington as if Farrington was going to like run away and try to play. It's like, what are you doing here? Yeah. This isn't actually like the first time that's happened. I guess my mom was there with Rue once and there was like a dog that was little and the woman freaked out when it tried to play with another dog or something. But also like go to the little dog park. Yeah. There's a dog park adjacent for smaller dogs. Yeah. Go over there. I don't know. I'm like, as a dog owner, a new dog owner, I'm very careful to not be that person that's like thinking that like my dog, it's okay for them to do anything. Like other people are uppity, just like let my dog do what it wants. Yeah. Like I don't want that to be the situation. Like I want to be respectful. Like I don't just take my dog. I don't let my dog just like go jump on people. Like if my dog's barking, I try to quiet it because I don't think it's fair to like expose people who don't have dogs or don't want a dog around to a dog. Yeah. There's a limit because I've known people who get like complaints of their dog barking in apartments building and they're like, 
I can't believe someone would complain about my dog barking. It's like, I can't believe you're saying this. Like, yeah. of course they would complain. Like they want peace and quiet and your dog's barking. But that's just like a weird attitude to have. It's just like, there's an air of entitlement. Yeah. And I think people, sometimes I feel like that have like kids. Yeah. I've had that happen where like a kid is kicking the back of my like airplane seat. And like, I'm supposed to put up with that. Yeah. Like I'm in the wrong for turning around and saying like, hey, can you get your kid to stop kicking my seat? It's bothersome. So I'm like super conscientious not to be that person. Yeah. So I really look at it objectively. Sorry, I'm like really passionate about this. Okay. And like, did Root do something wrong? Did we do something wrong? And again, it's like, we're at a dog park. Like they're dogs. Yeah. You know, like sometimes they're going to tackle each other. Sometimes the dog is going to fall down. Sometimes the dog is going to like bite the collar. Like it yeah. happens. Sometimes the dog is going to get ticked and go be like, and then the other dog is going to leave. And yeah. That's what's supposed to happen. Like there's a limit. Of course, like if Rue was aggressive, that would be different. And I mean, but, you've seen those dogs. Around. Yeah. Those dogs, you just, you know, most people don't bring those to the dog park. Yeah. Although that one guy had a dog with a muzzle on at the dog park. Oh, once. that was, yeah, that's super weird. Yeah. Because that's also not very fun for the dog. There's definitely like, like a mixed consensus on dog parks. I am like solidly in the middle. Like there's some days where I'm like, I'm really glad to have access to it. And then there's other days where I'm like, mm, this could cause some like behavioral challenges and like undo training that we've worked hard on. Yeah. But Rue, like she seems to understand like her recall and everything's still really good in the dog park. Like she listens, you can get her to sit and wait even if there's other dogs around. So like, you know, that's okay. Like my biggest concern is that she's going to get mixed up with a dog that shouldn't be in the dog park and have a bad experience and that's going to impact her. But that hasn't happened. I mean, we had a bad experience with a dog not in a dog park. Yeah. True. So it's like, I don't know. I think that's just, there's a risk that you take with a dog, especially if, you know, you are at an off leash park or you're in an area that's off leash and there might be another dog. So yeah. I don't know. I like the dog park. I like seeing other dogs. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good time. Anyway, so I guess back on back on topic, what we're talking about today is ADHD. And we've kind of alluded to the fact that this episode was coming in a few of our previous episodes. I think that we weren't and I wasn't in a place to really talk about it in a way that was, I guess, as informed as it is now with like the perspective that we have. I don't think we were in a good enough spot yeah. to discuss it because it did come up a couple of months ago. But it was like still definitely causing some issues. So it's yeah. like, how do we get on a podcast and talk about this when we literally just had a fight about it yeah. like two hours ago? Yeah. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with ADHD last year. Not quite a year ago, actually. I guess it was January of this year. I went through a, like a five session with an ADHD specialist to... Yeah, go through my history, talk about how I struggle and come up with a diagnosis if there was one. So what let's back up. What led you to be like, hmm, yeah, I um, think I should maybe try to get diagnosed for this or like I want to pursue this path because it could improve my life. Mm -hmm. I would say probably about a year ago, like October last year is when things kind of came to a head for me with what I was like struggling with. And it's weird, like what set this off. But essentially... As you may know, we spent two weeks in Tanzania on safari and to get the business to a place where it could kind of run itself for that two week period took an enormous amount of effort, not only on the admin side, but on content creation and making sure that there was stuff to go up on our social media channels. So that was a big creative effort. And then towards the tail end of that trip, I think we were both getting really anxious about the amount of time that we had taken off work. So we started working. And so what I did at that time and basically for the entire like travel back. So a couple of days leading into the travel back home and then the travel day, travel days was work on our yearly like habits challenge, which I totally revamped that year. And it was a huge effort. And it was one of those things. And I've had a, this experience a few times in my life where I just get so into one project that I'm doing in particular, like creative projects, I was obsessed with the way that it looked, the software that I was using, like everything about it. And I worked probably like 10 hours straight on it, on the plane. And it was beautiful. It was amazing. And then we get back and it was as if I like, I fell into a, a hole in my brain. Like I had no creative output. I was tired. I was in a bad mood. I was having a really hard time getting back to even like a base level of functioning in my life. We're in like a slump. Yeah. Like I don't want to call it depression, 
it was almost like a paralysis. Like I was having trouble, like you'd think two weeks out of the gym, I would be excited to get back into training. I was having trouble getting into training. Like I was crying all the time. I think part of that is like, you couldn't do anything. Like you couldn't focus. I remember you saying like, I can't even think of a post. Yeah. I can't, like, I just, I can't go there. Yeah. You struggle to just like do Mm. action. And then I think you felt so bad about feeling that way. Like, it was just like, we've talked on this podcast about like the second, the third, the fourth arrow. Yeah. And that was just hitting you because it was like, okay, well, I, I already feel bad. So I'm not going to work out because I'm struggling to get to the gym. But now I feel even worse because I'm really angry that I didn't get to the gym or like mad that I feel this way. And that's preventing, like it was, yeah. it was just this vicious cycle. And then I would try to help. It was like, nothing was going in. And I remember this, and I don't know if it's similar, but this is something that happened after the CrossFit Games when you went in 2018. Yeah. It was like you were a completely different person. Yeah. Like I've definitely had little like premonitions in my life or like experiences that are very similar to this. And I have never thought to try to label them or figure out what the root cause was. Like this one was different though, I think, because it's something that I do care a lot about, which is our work and our business. It's like the thing that I care the most about. And I couldn't do anything. Like I basically just had to like, sideline myself. I could barely communicate with clients. I remember wondering, and I'm obviously a little bit like sensitive about our relationship. And if something's off, I remember saying like, are we in a rough patch? Like, am I doing something? Like, do you not love me anymore? Uh Because you just had no interest. Like you weren't even communicating with me. Like it was like, as if you were annoyed by me. I was, I was annoyed by everything. Yeah. And I was just like, everything's falling apart. Mm-hmm. So I would say that was kind of the catalyst. And I remember- And then you have to go like, and text a client. And you're like, hey, Sally, how's it going? Happy Friday. The cognitive dissonance that I've experienced a few times in my life, you know, feeling like I am in like shambles from a mental health standpoint, like I could do to just stay in bed all day. And instead, what I have to do is like create space for other people and talk to them and make sure that like fundamentally they know they don't think that like anything is wrong with me or they don't know about what I'm struggling with because like they're paying me to help them. It doesn't yeah. matter what I have going on. That's not on the table. For Especially discussion. when you were just away for two weeks. Exactly. Like everybody wants to hear about the safari. Everybody wants to catch up. They have their own, you know, stuff that's been going on for a few weeks that they want to tell you about. And meanwhile, I'm in such a dysregulated state that I can't go two hours without crying, but I have to put on my happy face and talk to people all day. And that probably made things worse. Not that like anyone needs to feel bad about that. I'm I'm sure that therapists and people who work with like client facing roles have this commonly. Anyone with a job, like when you're in a slump or even like a depression or something more severe, Mm -hmm. a lot of people still have to show up for work. Yeah. And it's tough regardless of what your job is. Mm -hmm. Obviously harder when it's client facing, but still. Yeah, exactly. I remember Googling, like all I could pinpoint was I just put in this enormous like creative effort And now I feel like I'm in this sort of mental hangover. So I Googled something along those lines and I found this one blog that basically like to a T described what I was going through. And it was written by this woman who was really high achieving. She was, I think, a physician or a doctor and she decided to write a book. And so she did. And she was describing this thing that happened after she finished writing her book where basically like she's like, I was non-functional. She's like, I didn't know why. I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't like show up for my kids. I was struggling in every way that you can imagine as a human being. And I didn't know what was going on. And she ended up, I guess, going to see her physician and then a psychologist and said was diagnosed with ADHD. And so that was kind of the aha moment for me or like, maybe this is what I'm dealing with. I was doing more research and just finding more evidence and anecdotes that were very similar to things that I had experienced in my life, either previously or, you know, I was currently going through it. So at that point, I think sometime in November, I reached out to someone who I was connected with by a friend. It was a referral who works as a counselor and a ADHD specialist in Calgary out of an office that does that work for specifically adults. So I started my sessions with that person. And ADHD, I guess we should back up and maybe talk about what that is. So it's Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. That's the acronym. It used to be called, there used to be something referred to as ADD, 
they don't use that term anymore. And when a lot of people think ADHD, they think of, well, number one, they think of boys. Even though you've been through it, I still imagine like boys in school, like grade school, just like completely out of control. Because for so long, it was thought to only affect boys. And, you know, as is typical, women and girls just weren't included in research or weren't evaluated for it. And the reason for that is, you know, boys tend towards the external symptoms of ADHD. So the outward hyperactivity, the outward inattentiveness, the sometimes aggression. So it's like very apparent when boys are struggling, whereas girls, it's more of an internal condition a lot of the times. So there's not an outward expression at least to the extent that you tend to see with boys. And what I thought was interesting is I learned that boys, as they get older, men, their symptoms tend to improve with age, whereas women's symptoms tend to get worse. And I don't know how much of that is because there just isn't conversation around it. It's not something that girls are diagnosed with early in life. I mean, I'm a prime example of it. I had no idea. I had no idea. And so there's an element of anxiety. And then it creates a lot of shame because you're like, why can't I do what other people can do? Why can't I function at this level? Why do I struggle with basic tasks? Like, why do I suck at time management? Why do I think that things will take half the time that they actually take? Like, you just start to believe there's something wrong with you because no one early in your life was like, hey, it's okay. You just have ADHD. Yeah. I think any mental health or even just general health disorders Labels can be scary, but I think that they can be very comforting after you kind of come to terms with them. It's like, oh, you have ADHD. Like some people might be like, what? Yeah. But then after it's like it helps kind of conceptualize or explain why things happen and you get away from the something. Oh, I'm just like messed up. Like, yeah, I never do anything right. Or yeah, like that self-esteem isn't impacted as much. It's like there's a reason that's okay, and I'm not alone in that. And there's you know, something that you can do to treat it. It's like the path is a little bit more clear or at least the path to why you are the way that you are is clear, which is very comforting. Yeah. And they've done a lot of research in this area. And so when a lot of people think of ADHD, yeah, you're thinking of boys, you might know a little bit about it and you might know that it affects like the ADHD brain does not produce dopamine or norepinephrine in the same amounts as a neurotypical brain and at the same time. So like, A really basic example is the base level satisfaction that a neurotypical brain or a person who is neurotypical will experience completing just normal daily tasks, things like putting the dishes away, folding laundry, completing a work task. Each time you do that with a neurotypical brain, there's just a little bit of dopamine release. That doesn't happen for people with ADHD. And so it's a really complex disorder. But at a base level, there's a difference in the neurotransmitters that are produced by the brain. So there's that. So brain function. There's actually a difference in brain structure. So prefrontal cortex is extremely small. Well, (laughs) just kidding. It's pea size, barely, barely identifiable on an MRI. Gigantic (laughs) amygdala. Yeah. But there's different parts of the brain fire. They're different sized. There are certain parts that are bigger or smaller than neurotypical. They see different like blood flow and like electrical signals when you look at the brain and a living person. So it's you know, there's all these things. And of course, that that would impact brain development. So it's sort of a chicken in the egg. But, you know, all these things together impact the way that a person with ADHD thinks and moves and interacts with the world. So anyways, because for so long, it was thought to be a male only disorder. There's a whole generation of women who have not been diagnosed and are diagnosed later in life. And I think, you know, whenever we talk about this, there's such an interest from that group of people, I think, because there are so many people who are getting diagnosed. And I heard once in this session that women are diagnosed most commonly with ADHD after the birth of their first child. And then also when they go through menopause, those are the two times when women are diagnosed most commonly. And then for me, I was like, well, I don't have babies and I'm not going through that menopause transition yet. But the guy I was working with, he's like, well, you do have a business and that's a lot like a baby. In that it requires a lot of thought and executive functioning on a level that maybe I didn't have before. And, you know, when I think back to my previous career, when I was working in pharmaceutical research and development, it wasn't a desk job. Like I wasn't sitting there doing the same shit every single day. Like it was a job that every single day was different. It was just constant problem solving. So it was like very engaging work. And even still, like I struggled 
with this structure. And I struggled when specifically, I think I had to work so hard to establish structure that when something would disrupt it, I would get irrationally upset. And so what came out of my sessions with my diagnoses was we talked about, we started thinking about my life prior to our relationship, my childhood. And the thing that really started to jump out was that I have a real problem with emotional regulation and handling emotions in a normal way and an irrational way. And that's a common symptom of ADHD that I didn't know about. For me, I mean, this is so complicated, right? There's so much going on in my life. For me, the thing that you need, this is even like up into like recently, I've been struggling sort of with grieving the loss of my mom, which happened like that was 2015. So it's been eight years, over eight years at this point. I think this is common. And it's something that I talked to my therapist about. I don't think it's uncommon for grief to take a few years, especially in a complicated circumstance like this was. But it seemed like every time I would try to go there and something would set me down the path of like thinking about that or, you know, I would start to get sad because of it. It was like I couldn't delineate like what I was feeling. It was like a black ball of bad feelings. And I couldn't put my finger on what it was, what I was feeling, why I was feeling it. It was just kind of like this tornado that like feels off limits for me almost because of I just get in it and I can't make any sense of it. I think it's too like to go back to struggling to diagnose you or even like have an understanding. Like even when you say like emotional dysregulation, I think a lot of people probably think of that as somebody who just like snaps and gets really angry and is like externally emotional. That's like me. Mm-hmm. At least it was me before I kind of like had a better understanding of what I was going through. But for me, it's like very external. And there's a lot of people who like, they're very external. Like they talk about it, they cry, they get really mad at someone. There's like scapegoats. Like you were my scapegoat for a long period of time. I would just like lash out. Whereas your emotional dysregulation is like a shutdown. Like you're very internal. Like you get really mad, but like all I know is something's wrong. Like I'm not like, oh, you're really mad or you seem really sad. I'm just like, Meredith, you don't seem like you. But it didn't seem to me like if someone were to say Meredith is very emotionally dysregulated, I'd be like, no, she's not. Like you seem on the surface, even in those states, very calm. I think you'd have to be someone like me or your sister or somebody who knows you really well to be able to like pinpoint that because it's so internal. Yeah, I think I tend towards hypo arousal Mm -hmm. with emotions. I don't know if it's like a compartmentalization thing. I'm sure that it is. I'm sure I learned that a long time ago. Well, I don't think you're actually compartmentalizing it. It's like impacting, but like from an external way, you definitely put it away. It's like hidden. And then it's like, well, do you want to talk about it? And I think that's really what sets me off most commonly. Like for you, talking about things makes them better. Whereas for me, I don't even know where to begin or how to talk. Like literally, and I know that you know this because you're in a relationship with me. You've asked me that question and I can't even get words to come out of my mouth. Like I can't, it all of a sudden just feels like I'm choking. And I'm like, you want me to talk about this? I don't even know what this is. All I know is it like hurts a lot. And if I talk about it, it hurts even more. And so I just like, I can't. But I think that's it's a common complication with ADHD is managing extreme emotions like grief and loss and knowing how to do that. And again, I didn't have anyone in my life to help me at that time. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't know that like, there's a way to get better at this. There are tools that you can use. I was like, I'll just shut that down. I'm just going to put those things in a box and I'm not going to open it because if I open it, it just hurts. So why would I do that? What's the utility there? Except now I'm in a part of my life where it's like, you can only keep that box closed for so long before it's just like, hey, you're going to want to open that at some point and maybe like deal with some of these things because they're going to come out of the box eventually. So yeah, or you could be in a relationship with someone like me who's like picking the lock on the yeah. box to get it open. I just because I know just everything <laughs> about you, and I'm like, I don't want you to know everything about me. It hurts to talk about. Yeah, and that's the other thing I, I think. And this is not to blame you for anything that I've dealt with, but I, I do wonder if you would even know that you have ADHD right now if it weren't for me. Probably not. Number because like you wouldn't have somebody constantly asking you for the last three years, like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Like, I don't know. Is there something wrong with me? 
And, and that's like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that again, like the guy that I worked with said that's this is really common for relationships to kind of like bring things to a head. And it's not just my ADHD. Like you have your shit too mm-hmm. that came to a head. And I think it does come out of partially comparison where I'm like, well, why can't I do what Alex does? Like she doesn't struggle with these things in any way at all. And why do I struggle? And also like, you know, you're kind of pushing me to be better and and do a better job in areas that I just historically struggle with. Whereas with, if I'm by myself, I can basically use whatever jacked up system has worked for me to this point, And that's fine because no one else has to see it or be involved with it. Like go to the grocery store every single day because you can't plan ahead and make a list. Look like for multiple days in advance. And that's like, that's not even to make fun of you. No. It's like, it's the truth. Like you used to go to the grocery store every day because you couldn't be like, well, what should I buy today for dinner tomorrow? Alex, why do you think I chose a condo <laughs> above a grocery store? That's just called, that's part of the system. I, oh yeah, that's, that's fair. Setting that's fair. yourself up for I would success. like go visit and you're like, we'll just get what we need for today. And I Wake was like, up at like 6.30 a.m. And we're like, oh, I'm out of jam. I'll be right back. <laughs> I mean, that that worked for me. And there's, yeah, no, there's nothing work. wrong with that. It stopped working so well when I moved into a bigger city, not above a grocery store. Yeah. So I got the diagnosis of combined ADHD, which is there's three types of ADHD. There's inattentive ADHD. There's hyperactive ADHD. And then there's combined where you do a little of both. And that's me. I do a little of both. And so... It's one of those things you get the diagnosis and like, what do you do with it? Right. I didn't do anything with it for a long time. There was part of me. I was like, hey, so executive functioning coaching is a thing. I can look into that. You know, medication is a thing. I can look into that. But like typical ADHD, I never actually actioned anything. It was just like, I'll just do that later. I'll just do that. I'll do that later. I'll just I'm I'm a little busy. I'll just do that later. Yeah. And you were getting by like that depression slump, whatever we want to call it after Tanzania. You did get out of that. I don't remember how long it lasted, maybe two to four weeks. You kind of kind of started coming out of it. Yeah. I think as you started understanding what might be going on, that helped. At that point, like you were getting by. Like we would still argue about certain things. And I'd say, like, hey, you should, you know, pursue your diagnosis and try to get help and all that. But like you were getting by. Like yeah. the, you know, we'll talk about the good things that you do and all of the things that you're really good at, probably partially due to ADHD. So it wasn't like something that was impacting your life on a like daily basis. You're like really struggling with like we had kind of worked around it to some degree. Yeah. And my experience every day with ADHD to talk about that a little bit is essentially, you know, this is supported by research. Like what people with ADHD struggle with is task prioritization. So a lot of parents specifically, they'll have a kid who you know, maybe goes to the doctor or gets a diagnosis of ADHD or maybe another parent asks and they go, well, my kid doesn't have ADHD. He can focus on this or focus on that for hours or she. And it's not that there's an inability to focus on things. It's that sometimes the focus is extremely inappropriate, not on the tasks that would be most beneficial at that time. People call it hyper focusing. Sometimes I've used that almost like a fixation. So Mel Robbins described it as, as a human being, you have all of these tasks, ideas, to-do lists, things going on in your head. But a normal brain, the way a normal brain works is there's a conductor that sort of says like, okay, let's quiet these sections down. Let's make this section louder because it needs to be the priority right now and quiet that section down. And then when you're done with the priority, The conductor says, okay, you quiet down. Now this, more volume here. There's kind of this like overarching regulation of where focus needs to be and when. The ADHD brain doesn't have that. It's like if you sat down in an orchestra and every musician on the floor played their instrument as loud as possible for the entire thing, that's what it's like. Or it's like they're all warming up using like different notes. You know how sometimes they do that at the beginning of orchestras when they're warming up? I've only been to one or two. But it's just like, it's crazy. And everyone's kind of the same volume. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're like, that's not nice to listen to. (laughs) That's it. There's no one there to organize it. And so it takes a lot of energy to do that. And I think for me, I tend to get really into creative tasks. Like that's the thing that my brain goes to. It's like, okay, what creative thing am I doing today? And that's where 
my attention will go for literal hours and I will abdicate responsibility for household tasks. I forget to eat for a long time, like over a year, like I really struggled to even like get into a consistent workout routine. Like my workouts were so sporadic and I'd have to skip parts of it because they would just get crammed in to the end of the day because I had lost focus. And I relied on caffeine to medicate, to self-medicate, which I guess is an effective tool. Just why we have a $4,000 espresso machine. Yeah, that's my medicine. (laughs) But it took me a lot of energy to do the things that I needed to do every day and make sure that I was at least like partially meeting your expectations, household tasks, things like that. It's just an exhausting amount of energy to kind of mask what I was struggling with and get through each day. Yeah, so that was kind of my experience in my adult life, I guess. If I'm being honest, probably my teenage life too. I was a good student, like I made good grades, but I went about it in a really weird way. And on my report cards coming through elementary school, I don't know if it was report cards or just like feedback that you get. It was always, Meredith needs to use her time more wisely. That was always on my report card somewhere because I would just procrastinate, 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 procrastinate. And then what did I learn in my session? Well, there's a really good reason why people with ADHD procrastinate. And it's because when you procrastinate and then you do an enormous volume of work at once, you complete it, your brain at that point releases dopamine. So you actually learn to procrastinate because it literally makes you feel good. It's stressful. It's stressful to do things that way. But at the end of it, you actually get a reward that you don't get normally. It's not that people with ADHD are lazy. It's not that they're not focused. It's learned behavior because of your biology. Yeah. And because of the way that your brain works. That makes sense. I think like for me living with you, it definitely was weird. Like you functioned very differently than me. And I will be the first to admit that for a long time, and I still struggle to some degree and have to check myself quite frequently. Like I have this expectation that like people should be like me. I consider myself extremely disciplined, extremely organized. Like I'm just a good planner, like timely. That's one of my strengths. And I feel like it's a very productive way to move through the world. And I think I have this expectation that you will be like me, that people should be like me. And if they're not, they should strive to be like that. And I grew up in a house that was similar. Like my mom's like that. My dad's like that. Like I had to be like that to be successful as a student athlete. So it was very, very frustrating for me to like, number one, live with someone who wasn't like that. And I did say like, you're lazy. Like you don't clean because you don't want to, or you don't clean because you know I'll do it. Like I was saying these things because I had no understanding of what was going on. So it was just like my perspective rather than like, us working together. And then when I started going to therapy and I started practicing like radical acceptance, that helped a lot. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, that's who she is. Like there are a lot of strengths. And like, I think that was kind of timed with your self-diagnosis of ADHD. And then you were confirmed ADHD, which we kind of knew you would be. It wasn't a surprise. But then even after you were diagnosed, even though I was starting to understand more and trying to accept There was only so much radical acceptance that I could take. Like at that point, you knew that you had it and you knew that there were different paths forward to like live with it in a more productive way. And you weren't pursuing those. And that's when like the arguments started again. Like, you know, recently when we moved, we talked about that. It was like, okay, Meredith, like it's not really an excuse anymore. You know, like I get like, I'm going to give you some slack and I'm going to try to have an understanding and I want to know what your experience was with this situation. But like, At the same time, like, let's be a little bit more proactive here. And I think, like you said, with the procrastination, you were doing that. And so finally, it just took a little bit of a push. And like, I think that there's with anyone who's a very healthy person or anyone in general, there is some stigma with medication. It's like a lot of people strive to go a non-medicated route. And I tried to do that for a long time with my anxiety. And it's tough. Like, it's tough to even go to therapy and find these other routes. You know, I don't want to get into this, but it's the same with the weight loss drugs. Like it's so hard when you're battling against some biology or like the way your brain has functioned for so long and the patterns that it's developed. Like sometimes just like maybe a little bit of medication or even like trying something new could help drastically, at least at the beginning to help you like implement some new strategies or systems. I think when you talk about procrastination, what comes to mind, and then I'll stop talking, was when we used to be asked to do presentations for tactic together. 
And I'm someone who is like an over-preparer and like, I'm not the best at presenting. So that's part of it. Like I will draft out my presentation like weeks in advance and then have to practice. Whereas you, you'll do it the day before, or sometimes the day of Usually, you're putting yeah. the PowerPoint together. It got to the point where I basically just was like, I'm not presenting anymore. You have to do it. I can't. It was so stressful for me. Yeah. I guess it was stressful for you to some degree. You do a great job. Like you have the natural ability, but that was a prime example. On the flip side, the fact that you can hyper fixate on creative stuff and it just so happens that creative stuff helps really propel our business forward has been hugely beneficial for us. Yeah. I mean, like the fact that you sit and you can do 10 hours of learning how to use a Premiere Pro video editor. I mean, that has saved us probably thousands and thousands of dollars because you're so good at it. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, you know, there's pros and cons to it. You don't want to lose the things that it does for you. No. Yeah. I mean, there's two sides of the coin. That's one. Like there's certainly a benefit in having a creative knack, enjoying the work, and then also having an ability to learn specifically new technology and things like that. But you also want to be able to do a project that requires 10 hours on Premiere is it Premiere Pro? It's Premiere Pro, yeah. And then not go into like a slump many hours. After. I think even after the diagnosis, I was going through periods of like functioning highly and then not. Not to the same degree as like post Tanzania, but it was I was riding a wave. Since I know that now and I, I know that that's common, I can see that I've been riding that wave for like my entire adult life where it's just like bouts of productivity. And if I'm being really honest, like my CrossFit Games year 2018 it took so much effort and focus to put in the training and like maintain that schedule that like that was probably part of it was the crash after. I mean, it was a physical crash, of course, but also a mental one from all the management, time management, things like that. So yeah, it kind of came to a head again, I think, because like you said, you can only put up with so much and ADHD is not. And this was something that my therapist told me many times. He said, it's not an excuse. He's like, it can be your truth. It cannot be cured. But you can live with it. There are tools. So it's not an excuse. It's not a way for you to forego responsibility as a good partner, both like business partner and romantic partner. But it's on you. Like you have to be the one to do it, to get treatment, to decide what path you go down. So and like you said, I think there was part of me that just really wanted to not go on medication because of my own bullshit underlying beliefs about medication. Well, that I and you thought you were going to have to quit coffee. Yeah, that's that was a deterrent as well. Yeah. Um, So I was like, that would suck, especially you because you love coffee so much. Yeah. So I ended up going on medication. That was like a month or two ago, month ago. Month. And so there's a few different routes for medication. The one that everyone kind of knows is like Ritalin or an Adderall, which is a psychostimulant. So what those do is the ADHD brain does not produce neurotransmitters, norepinephrine and dopamine. Taking a psychostimulant helps it do that under normal conditions. Adderall has been around for a really long time. Ritalin has as well, but they're very short acting. They're like four hours. And so now there's Adderall extended release and then one called Vyvanse, which is a pro drug. So you actually take it. And this is the one that I'm on. It takes a little bit longer to kick in than Adderall extended release. When you take it, it's in an inactive form. And then your body metabolizes it into the active form. So the reason why that's beneficial is when you look at the dosing curve and the amount that gets into your bloodstream, it's a less extreme spike and then it lasts longer. So I started taking that and it was pretty immediately noticeable. Not only like, I mean, besides the, which we talked about on the moving podcast, there's a period of time when you go on that medication or change dose where there's like a hyperactivity the doctor didn't warn me about that, but I was like, my God, like I've taken meth. Like it was pretty ridiculous. That kind of subsides after a few days. I noticed my brain is working differently. I said, like fundamentally, I'm doing tasks that I would not normally like intuitively do. I feel like I'm a little more in tuned emotionally. Like I can actually feel emotions <laughs> and like differentiate between different ones. Like they don't all just come out as anger which that was my typical emotional expression was like, whatever it was, I was mad. And so now I'm, I'm like, oh, I, I have like a very complex range of emotions. How nice. Like, I, I feel like myself, which is, it sounds silly because I'm 35 and haven't always felt like myself, but I don't think I have. So I can actually like feel like this is how I'm supposed to feel. 
even you had like a big push for work a couple weeks ago, which was related to launching the beta testing for the fitness program. Yeah, huge work days. And I was like bracing for like just based on history. Yeah. I was like, oh, geez, next week's going to be bad. And you were fine. Wasn't. There was no crash. You were okay. And I was just like, what? Everything's okay. Like, I'm not walking on eggshells anymore. Yeah. You think you're happy about it. Like, imagine how I feel. Just to get to go on functioning. It's it's nuts. It's pretty remarkable, the change. Yeah. And then what's interesting is one of the side effects to this drug, and I've even gone up, my dose has gone up since I started. The most common side effect is well, one of the most common ones is sleep disturbances because it is a stimulant. And so some people, they struggle to fall asleep and get a good night's sleep when they take it. And what's weird is like my sleep is actually better than it has been a really long time. And my hypothesis for this, and I don't know if it's true or not, is that it's taking less energy for me to just like get through my days. I don't have to work as hard for it. And so I go to sleep and I don't have to sleep as long I sleep better because I don't have this like constant to-do list running around in my head or I'm not remembering at night what I forgot during the day because I'm not forgetting things. I'm waking up without an alarm an hour earlier than I normally would if I just slept. So it's like my sleep quality is better on it. You're like me now. I get up before you most days. We're like now we're really firing on all cylinders. Yeah. Like medication, it's not like the only route. And some people won't have a good experience on psychostimulants. It's not for everybody. But for me, it has really, really helped. You've also done a really good job of making sure that you're staying on top of your eating because that's another symptom yeah. or yeah, side effect of the drugs. So it's like ensuring that you, and I, I sometimes have to help with this, but not really making sure that you're kind of staying on top of your meal schedule and eating yeah. lunch specifically. Sometimes you're eating lunch at like 3.30 and I'm like, oh, she forgot. I forgot. <laughs> it does have a pretty extreme like appetite suppressing like I have half a bagel sitting over there that I couldn't get through. Well, I'll eat it in a minute, but it does affect your appetite pretty significantly. So you have to stay on top of your eating. I mean, we're nutrition coaches, so we're biased, but I think like ensuring that you're eating enough, even though you feel like you might have more energy because of a drug, that probably isn't going to last if you're yeah. under eating and under fueling and all that. I definitely had a day a couple of weeks ago where I did not do a good job eating. And it's a really weird feeling because I got to 3 p.m. and was like super wired, but I was feeling like I had physical side effects of hunger and like low energy. I felt very much a shell in that moment of like, oh shit, like I can't just get by on this medication. Yeah. (laughs) So that was a good reminder. And then the other cool thing that it's done for me, like I said earlier, I was in the habit of really pushing off my training. I mean, I've still got most of my workouts in, but they were not as high quality as they could have been. And for the last few weeks, it's been a lot easier for me to essentially like get up, take the medication, do work for a few hours, walk through. And then at like nine or nine thirty, I shut things down and I go do my workout. Like earlier in the day, a much easier time focusing on it and being fully present with my training and not allowing work to creep in or not stressing about other things and having that impact quality. And then I shut down my workout and I go back to work. And it's like I'm doing a better job compartmentalizing my day without allowing things to just kind of like be in, like I'm not making a stress soup of all of the shit that I have to do in a day. I'm actually like, okay, I'm going to do this. I did that. Okay, now I'm going to do this. I did that. Okay, now I'm going to do this. And I've never functioned like that in my entire life. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely still moments where I'm like, oh yeah, that's old Meredith. Or like, that is Meredith and that's okay. I got lucky. I was working with a therapist that had ADHD. She was open with that. So when I would complain about like, or talk about our arguments or like, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated about this. Like, is it me? Is it her? And she's like, it's not either one of you. It's just not a productive interaction. You know, Meredith is like that because of this. And like, that's how she thinks. And that's okay. And it's like, she helped me kind of have a better understanding and like, you know, being able to maneuver this. Like, I don't think, and again, I'm not the one with ADHD, but just having been in a relationship and part of this whole process, like you weren't just like, oh, something's wrong. I'm not productive. I'm going to go on medication. Like this has been a year long process of like a ton of research, like articles, listening to podcasts, like on both accounts, a lot of work on my end. So if you're a partner of somebody with ADHD, it's not just like, oh yeah, my partner is ADHD. It's been all them, like all along. I take a lot of responsibility for some of the struggles that we've had on account of your ADHD and my non-acceptance of it or misunderstanding of it. 
And then with the medication, like you did look into other options. You did like invest quite a bit of money and time into therapy Mm -hmm. and making sure that you had a good understanding and something to provide to your primary care doctor when they were prescribing. This wasn't willy nilly. Oh, medication solved everything. No, there's a lot of work that was under kind of the surface of medication and the medication isn't a band aid. It's like you're still working on creating structure. And I was saying like the other day you, you took a day off the medication and I was thinking like probably just getting in the habit of working out, for example, working out at 9 a.m. every day. Like even on the days you're not on medication, you might be more likely to go and do it anyway. Yeah. Because you just created that pattern, that habit, that routine. It's just something that is in my life. Yeah. Did your therapist with ADHD tell you that in the session where she was wearing two different shoes? I don't know, but the second session she was wearing two different shoes. They were very similar. Yeah. They were like, like, what do you call it? Like, like slides, ba- like, slides, yeah. like ballet flats. And they were both like beige color, but they're different. We were too soon for me to be like, um. Are those, this, are those different <laughs> shoes? I still like, I should ask her. I yeah. don't see her very frequently anymore, but I want to be like, hey, that one time, did you wear different shoes? Yeah. You told me that and it made me laugh. Just knowing that she has ADHD and that's like a, definitely. Didn't you do. once wear like one of my shoes? And I one wore, of your shoes. Yeah, it was it was the same shoe because we have a different lot of different sizes. Pianos, and I wore one size on one foot, and the other size, your size, was half size bigger on. Yeah, on my like, other. I foot. could tell something was different. I didn't know what it was though. Or sometimes you're like, I think even though you're very detail orientated, you struggle sometimes with certain things. Yeah. Where you're like, you'll use something of mine, and I'm like, how did she not notice? Yeah. But anyways, yeah. that's um, being human. It is. Yeah. ADHD and living with ADHD is you can't cure it. It's something that you, if you have it or been diagnosed, have to figure out what's going to work for you from a treatment standpoint, a therapy standpoint, what's going to work in your relationship. There are a lot of different paths to functioning at whatever level is beneficial to you. So it's an ongoing process. And I'm sure it will continue to be an ongoing process for me as, as well. But I felt strongly about sharing this episode because so many people Every time we bring it up, message about it, either that they've been diagnosed or they want to hear about it. So, you know, I think it is something that we should normalize, especially the female experience, which is quite different. And the fact that so many women are getting diagnosed later in life, like I have. So, And if you don't have ADHD, it's really helpful to understand if you're a parent or a loved one. Yeah. It can be very, very helpful to have a better understanding. And we're just really like, this was an hour long. I mean, there's so much information out there. Yeah. And I don't think of it, even though it's got like the word disorder in the acronym, I don't really think of it as a disorder. It's just a difference. Mm -hmm. And once you can understand what that difference is, where it comes from and how it changes the way that you interact with the external world, then you can learn how to basically be your best in the world in which we live. Yep. So anyways, thank you for listening. Really appreciate it as always. I hope that you got a lot of this episode. It was a little on the vulnerable side, but yeah, we appreciate having the space to tell our stories as always. So if you liked it, make sure you share it with your friends, with your family, subscribe to the show and yeah, we'll see you on the next one.